I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. G'day, Dan Illich with you here for another episode of the greatest moral podcast of our generation on the Irrational Fear Feed. If you haven't heard the Goompoogs before, it's largely conversations about climate change with climate leaders, good and bad. We'll be back with a regular Irrational Fear show probably, oh, I reckon July, maybe August. I'm taking a few weeks off because I am freaking exhausted after the election. Uh, I need to recharge, think about this show, uh, think about how to make it better for the future and all that stuff. If you have any ideas, hit me up on Twitter or email dan at irrationalfear.com. We'd love to hear from you. Despite global warming, Irrational Fear is adding a little more hot air with long-form discussions with climate leaders. Good and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought. Greatest. Mass extinction. Moral. We're facing a man-made disaster. Podcast. They're the climate criminals. Of our generation. All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Goombog. For short. Many folks who listen to the podcast, you'd be familiar with the works of our next guest, Nick Bryant, BBC senior correspondent to Australia, South Asia, Washington and New York. One thing you may not know about him is he holds a doctorate in American politics from Oxford. But Nick has also been seconded by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas to host Journo, a podcast about journalism and those who dabble in it. My first question to Nick is, have you ever been on a plane when they call for a doctor, Dr. Nick Bryant? <laughs> I've always yearned for that moment and, and to go up the front and to say, you know, what what do you want to know about American history? Um, but alas. Let me talk to you about gerrymandering. Exactly. I can talk you through the sort of checks and balances of the US Constitution, but I, I, I don't think that would particularly help as this guy is sort of choking on his, um, you know, first class meal. No, I, I haven't done that, but it's very sweet of you to mention the doctor. I mean, I, I've, I've started deploying it for the first time in what, 30 years. I've, I've left the BBC now. and you, You've I'm, done the work. So, you know, you've got to use those doctor titles whenever you can. Like, yeah, it's and like, I've, I've hooked up with Sydney University, actually, where that kind of uh, title 
carries a bit of clout, you know. So yeah. I have actually started using it again, but. Yeah, it still feels very odd when anybody calls me um, Dr. <laughs> Bryant. I kind of look around and think, um, there must have been somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you ever think that American politics is so diseased that they could use your help, uh, Dr. <laughs> Bryant? That is a great way of putting it. But I think, you know, it is beyond the help of a physician at the moment, America. I think it is in such a sickly state. Um, yeah. Phew, terminal maybe is too strong, but um, yeah. <laughs> it's certainly got problems. I think it's terminal in terms of, the United States of America is a cohesive country right now. Uh, yeah. uh, I think we're talking about two Americas. And, uh, you know, across the board, I think you're going to, you know, the end of Roe versus Wade will mean there's an America where you can legally get an abortion. There's America where you can't get an yeah. abortion. There's going to be yeah. an America where you're more prone to get a pandemic, uh, suffer from a pandemic like COVID. And there's areas of America that are, it, two Americas is going to play out in so many different aspects of American life. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about something that is a little bit more existential for the entire globe. You have been doing some reporting recently on people who have been doing reporting on climate. This is uh, this is great. This is our wheelhouse here at Irrational Fear, Nick, as you may know. And so tell us, um, uh, you have a bit of a strange climate journey in your own right as a journalist. One of the things I do now is present a podcast called Journo. And, and we look at sort of the big issues of the day. And one of the things we decided to look at was was climate change. Why did you do that? Because the major parties in the last election totally forgot to mention anything about climate. It's so strange <laughs> think, that you would do that. I think that's the reason we did it. You know, it was uh, to make sure that people remembered, hey, you know, there's a planet under threat here. We need to be uh, talking about this a lot more in the media. And, and of course, one of the area, one of the sort of surprising developments since I've come back to Australia is, is the greening of the, of the Murdoch tabloids. So we, we talked about a lot of things in this, this podcast, and maybe we can talk about, you know, the, some of the broader issues later on, but we started with this extraordinary turnaround in the run up to the Glasgow climate change conference, COP26, uh, just before Christmas. Mm. You know, we woke up that day and you know, the Sydney Daily Telegraph had turned green. You know, it was yeah. talking about green and gold for Australia and the possibilities of Australia becoming this sort of renewable powerhouse. We had Joe Hildebrand on our podcast when that all happened. And right. <laughs> we lost about 20 Patreon subscribers. <laughs> right. Well, well, Joe was part of this wraparound, wasn't exactly. he? I think Joe exactly. wrote, a, wrote a column. They had this 16-page wraparound. It wasn't only in Sydney, in the Daily Telegraph. It was the Tizer in, in Adelaide for yeah. people outside Australia. That's the... Advertiser down in Adelaide, the Courier Mail, which is in Brisbane, the what is it, the Herald Sun down in Melbourne. I mean, all of the Murdoch tabloid came together at Green. It was a great six weeks, Nick. It was uh, a great six weeks of of climate change journalism. <laughs> yeah, and we were fascinated with with how that came about. I mean, you know, these are titles traditionally that that have been associated with climate change skepticism that have really had a go at. Things like the the carbon tax. They've run headlines like the zombie carbon tax and all this kind of stuff. And we were absolutely fascinated with how that turnaround had happened. Let's have a listen of uh, from Ben English, the uh, editor of the Daily Telegraph. The issue of climate change had never been tackled from a disinterested, objective, and a straightforward journalistic investigative approach. We felt that a lot of the journalism had actually veered into activism and there'd been a lack of curiosity about a lot of the data that had been presented. We felt that it had been written from a viewpoint that we would characterise as more elite. And I think that's why we felt that it hadn't really resonated with our readers, that um, it had been from a lofty height and an element of guilt and shame around it all. We we felt there was an opportunity 
to actually be right at the heart of the conversation but do it from a viewpoint of everyday Australians. Now, Nick, I had a look at some of those wraparounds at the time. And do you know who was writing some of those articles? Who? Gina Reinhart, Twiggy Forrest. Would you call them lofty and elite? The richest woman in Australia? Would you recall her lofty and elite? And the other thing about Ben English's quote there is like, never up until September 2021 has any journalist covered climate change in a disinterested, objective and straightforward manner. Wow. Thank God. Thank God for Ben English and the Daily Telegraph to finally come to the party to tell us what was really happening with climate change. Uh, look, I mean, Dan, that, that quote leapt out at, at me as well. But I mean, we were just fascinated with, with how this turnaround came about, how they decided they would attend the party. Six six specials in the lead up to COP is not a turnaround though. It's it's like a marketing spin for the 2050 program that Scott Morrison took to the took to COP. Like it, it's such a weird such a weird thing to kind of like looking at it in retrospect. Now that happened last year, and we haven't seen anything about climate from the Daily Telegraph since then. Mm-hmm. Well, look, that's something you need to take up with Ben English, and um, <laughs> that, those are questions. I, those are questions that that we put to him. The um, you know, what I think was interesting about it, talking about the sort of longer-term ramifications of it, I mean, some people thought, you know, is this Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch telling these guys to do this and telling these these editors to do this? Or is this something that is or more organic and, and bottom-up rather than top-down? And, you know, very clearly, Ben English said, you know, it wasn't a Murdoch initiative. You know, they, they say they've got autonomy, they can do what they want, and they decided they were going to do this. <laughs> they, they saw a lot of money heading into the sort of new energy space, uh, they followed that money, he said, all that kind of thing. And what it didn't do, Dan, as you know, is is bring about a bigger kind of, you know, come to Jesus moment, if that's indeed what it was. And I mean, I know you're sceptical about that, and, and me too. What it didn't do was signify something broader within the Murdoch empire, which was this, you know, were we going to see a change at the Wall Street Journal? Were we going to see a change at, at Fox News? Obviously, that, that just hasn't happened either. Do you think this is News Corp trying to keep <laughs> the coalition in power by making them move on climate in a meaningful way? Oh, look, it, you know, there's a lot of talk that the politics behind it was to give them cover before Glasgow wasn't there. There's a lot of talk behind it that the six issues yeah. of the Daily Telegraph yeah. that and came you, out up until the sixth weeks of, of COP. Yeah, and, you, and the idea of being, you know, you make the deal easier between the nationals when you're trying to, you know, get to that, that emissions target. Um, look, I think one thing it, it might have done is help Labor neutralise the issue. So much of Labor's political strategy ahead of the federal election was obviously to neutralise climate change as an issue. I remember talking to Anthony Albanese the, the Sunday, or maybe it was the week after, his, um, he released his climate change policy. You remember he did it on a Friday afternoon, a classic sort of bury the news mm. strategy. And that's right, he, he, he had a soft launch of his campaign just two days after that. And I remember talking to his aides just before that launch and, and they were just delighted with how, you know, little attention was being paid. I, I think, I think the announcement <laughs> made the kind of front page of the Daily Telegraph that morning, but it was kind of, it was right. You had to have almost a microscope to, to see it. And I remember sort of, they pointed me towards a Peter Harcher piece, which was in the Sydney Morning Herald that had talked about Labour's environment policy, not, not so much as a small target, as a as a zero target, as a no target. And I thought they maybe they wouldn't be that happy with that characterization, but they absolutely love that characterization. They they love the fact that they'd they'd launched this climate change policy and it really hadn't made any kind of tabloid splash. And maybe, you know, that 
change of um, of attitude from the the telegraph. If if it was meaningful, I mean, one thing it did do seemingly is to neutralize the issue of climate change. But I mean, you had a you had an election, obviously, where it was hardly discussed, which is you know extraordinary. I think you know if you if you're going to be looking back on the federal election of 2022 in a in a hundred years time, and and climate change doesn't even really feature. You know, I think people are going to be thinking out a minute. What, what was going on? Uh, just absolutely astonishing that, you know, the media kind of skipped over climate change a lot with this election and the major parties weren't talking about it at all. Yet the election result is all about climate. You had these climate independents pretty much dismantle the Liberal Party. You had these Greens on the rise. The one thing that everyone wasn't talking about was the actual clincher for this election. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating. I think it's a brilliant point. You know, this will be regarded as the climate change election, but it wasn't the climate change campaign. <laughs> Far from it. I thought that was fascinating. I mean, The Guardian did some quite interesting research, I think hooking up with a, a university. I think it was one of the ones in Melbourne. Mm. They looked at the discrepancy between the questions that were being asked on the campaign trail and the sort of questions that were really in the uppermost in people's minds. Actually, cost of living was number one on both. But climate change, there was a discrepancy. You know, it was far higher in the minds of voters than it was in the minds of journalists when they're asking those yeah. questions. Yeah. Look, it was a really small ball campaign. I think, you know, I think journalists need to have a bit of a think about how they covered it, to be honest, because I think the the gotcha line of questioning, which rarely went into climate change, did it? It was more on the kind of, it spoke about the financialization of politics in, in Australia and how, you know, obsessively people focus on, economic indices often rather than mental health indices or environmental indices or that kind of thing. You know, I think the media, you know, probably does need to have a bit of a rethink about how it, how it covers these campaigns because those kind of big issues just weren't given the airing that they, they should have been given. The perfect metaphor was I think Albo's second big stuff up on the campaign trail when he couldn't remember the NDIS policy. Mm. You know, do you know the, the forum for that press conference, where they were at that at that press conference? Um, no, where were they? They were at the Smart Energy Council. <laughs> That's brilliant. Conference. They were at the Smart Energy Council Expo. Albo had just jumped out of an electric semi-trailer uh, and they were walking around the conference floor, like surrounded by batteries and solar panels and wind farms, right? And the thing that the journalist asked about was this NDIS policy that he didn't know the answer to and had to get the press release to read off. That is the perfect that, that is, is the perfect, perfect summation of where this where this this media pack was at. You're at, at an you're at a, a green tech conference, not asking anything about green tech, but trying to catch the opposition leader off off track on something other other than green tech. Dan, that's a brilliant metaphor. I'm going to squirrel that away and use it sometime in the future because I think it's absolutely perfect. You're right. I was actually with Albo the next day. Um, I was um, with him. He went to a homeless shelter. Oh, no, sorry, a, a, a place that was a food bank that was that was giving people um, food for people that were struggling as largely as a result of COVID. You know, they'd seen people they'd never seen before. And again, the questioning really wasn't about that. What was what happened was a rerun of the NDIS gotcha for the day before. So he had a kind of two day gotcha where the, the reporter who'd asked the NDIS question kept on asking it the day later. Yeah, it was kind of nuts. I tell you what I saw for this time though, Dan, and I. You know, I've rarely seen this in Britain. I've seen it a lot in America, journalists getting booed, especially in Trump rallies and things like that. You know, I'm kind of used to that. But it's it came as a bit of a surprise in Australia. I spent a day with Morrison and I spent a day with Albanese. And 
at least these are nuts. I mean, you know, they they put on these kind of dreadful photo ops. You know, they they wear their high visibility jackets. You know, it looks like a sort of transcontinental costume party. And you know, then there's this half hour that you know all the journalists cite themselves up for, where they get to ask the questions. Now, my day with Morrison and my day with Albo, those press conferences both ended up with the journalists being heckled by members of the public <laughs> who just thought their questioning was was going too far. It was yeah. turning the election into a game of trivial pursuit. It was, you know, not treating the and it was really interesting. And I, you know, what what really worries me, I mean, talking sort of big picture, is this disconnect between the public and the press now. And you're yeah. seeing it across the world. You know, misinformation is the kind of beneficiary of this breakdown in trust. And it really worries me. And you know, we need to raise our game whether it's political coverage or whether it's climate change coverage. I mean, I just think that is an obvious thing that that we all need to do as journalists. One of the things I think we should do as climate change journalists, you know, how are our kids going to look at our coverage when they grow up? How are are future generations? I think that should be the test of our our climate change coverage. And I think, you know, frankly, most most of us are found, found wanting on that front. Yeah, I mean, Ben English isn't. I mean, he's obviously making great strides by letting Tim Blair and <laughs> Andrew Bold and Peter Credlin set the climate coverage for the Daily Telegraph by saying it's not real. I mean, I'll tell you one thing I did get to do in New York, which is really interesting. I got to cover the Greta Thunberg speech at the United Nations. I remember when she sort of stood there and just harangued the delegates. How dare you? It was just yeah. this electrifying moment. I mean, you know. A lot of the speeches at the United Nations are known for how long they went on. I think Fidel Castro used to speak for about three days. Greta Thunberg gave this extraordinary speech. And I mentioned it not only because it was an extraordinary historical moment. I got to interview a couple of days before. Oh, that, uh, how amazing. That was fascinating. And partly because they told me beforehand, Greta doesn't do small talk. Right? <laughs> Which for a Brit is kind of paralyzing. And yeah, actually, so what was your opening line, Nick? Well, I, I said to her handlers, and you know, Greta Thunberg is part of a very sophisticated media operation there. Mm. And it's really interesting to see her at the heart of this kind of group that uses her as this, well, I mean, gives her this platform and also understands the value of what she has to say and the power of the way she says it. I said to her, look, you know, I'm a Brit. I mean, we just talk about the weather. Surely, surely you know, she wants to talk about that. But and I she mentioned like, it. Nick, weather is not climate. <laughs> <laughs> but I mentioned it because it was the only time in my career that my kids actually thought I had a worthwhile job. <laughs> and I think that's interesting because they thought, you know, Dad, you should be spending more time doing climate change. And, you know, my kids actually took part in the protest that she led through the streets of New York, you know, they, they took the day off school or whatever. They went on strike and, you know, they were there and they were young kids then. I mean, they were kind of 10 and eight, I think, or even nine and seven. Anyway, you know, it was that classic daddy, what did you do in the war? You know? And I think that's a good question for journalists to ask themselves um, when it comes to covering, covering climate change. I think so. I, you know, I used to be a regular on insiders up until I put billboards in New York city, making fun of climate change. (laughs) (laughs) And I got asked not to come on Insiders because of that, like because it was deemed that, you know, that act turned me into something more than different than a comedian and that I, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly go on Insiders anymore to make jokes about cartoons that have been written in the newspaper. Oh, so they had you on Insiders in that segment where, is it Mike Bowers who does? Oh, okay, right. I've done, I've done that many times. So, um, but it was after that, it was after I put a funny joke myself, uh, 
in on a billboard in New York City that I was deemed an activist and could no longer uh, possibly objectively make jokes about the cartoons that other cartoonists have done. <laughs> well, I think that's a really interesting question because I do think that climate change journalism fits within the model of a great tradition of campaigning journalism. You know, we used to talk about... Like muckraking going way back, you know. Yeah, I mean, we we talk about the sort of heroic era of British newspapers when they sort of showed, you know, the drugs that caused flaminamide. And, and, you know, it's seen as great campaigning journalism. And, you know, I think for me, I think I don't see the reason why we shouldn't regard climate change as an issue where we should have great campaigning journalism. And Mm. if journalists face the accusation that they are straying into kind of activism, do you know what? I think we can kind of, I think we can live with that. I think we can live with that. (laughs) I think there are certain crises that require certainly an end to the kind of both sidesism. It's hard to know. Is James Morrow an activist? Is he? <laughs> like when you when you see folks like from the like on the Strident News Corp and on Insiders, those guys are just activists for a totally other thing. Yeah, and I think a lot of news organisations now are sort of getting away from that kind of both sides as a model. You know, the BBC for for years has sort of said the debate is over about the science, so we're not going to sort of. We're not going to start our morning on the Today Show, which is the big radio show in Britain that everybody listens to, with a debate that pits a climate change activist against a climate change skeptic. We're just we're not bothered. You know, we, that debate's gone. We're moving on. We're kind of thinking about solutions. And I mean, maybe maybe some would regard that as as activism, but it's it's just you know, the, there's a truth bias there. It's not a kind of bias towards. Yes, um, it's a truth <laughs> I, bias. And I mean, I think that, you know the truth bias is always the kind of key one that yeah. we should we should veer towards. It is, of course, a global issue, and you've been speaking to people all over the world about how they cover it, um, including the Guardian's Pacific uh, editor uh, from Samoa. Yeah, Lunga Breva, um, Cheryl Jackson, um, she is absolutely fantastic about this. I mean, I thought she was really interesting. I mean, first of all, climate change for her is a story that dominates the front page, the back page, and every page in between. You know, very little happens in... Samoa that doesn't involve climate change. And, you know, I, I was intrigued to speak to her about the challenge. You know, how do you keep telling the same story every every single day? You know, the conversation I had with her was really interesting because she spoke about how patronising she often thinks Western coverage of the Pacific Islands is. You know, they, I've, they got a bit of a, I've got a grab for her just yeah, on well, that. Here we yeah, go. Go for it. It has always been the sexy topic in international media to talk about the sinking islands. Oh, the helpless little islands in the Pacific. They're sinking. They're dying. We are not about that narrative in the Pacific. We're actually about empowering. We're a proud people, Nick. You know Polynesians. Polynesians are not taking anything lying down. You meet the Micronesians. They will not be taking this lying down and they are not doing that. And so those are the stories we love to tell. Great. Yeah, yeah I love awesome. that. She's saying, you know, you've got to get away from the doom and gloom narrative. You've got to get away from the narrative that we are helpless. You know, come to Polynesia, she said, a, a, an invitation I will happily accept anytime and see the laughter. You know, it's it's a place that isn't sort of living 
with this in a kind of mournful way. She said that. She said, we don't grieve every day. You know, we are a joyous people. We laugh a lot. Many Polynesians are very faithful people. They would mm. believe in a bright future. And there's a classic sort of white saviour syndrome here as well, isn't it? That it needs us as, as the white West to come and save <laughs> these islanders. And, you know, again, she just rejects that sort of paradigm yeah. when, it, when, it, when it comes to the reporting. And, I, uh, you know, I thought it was absolutely wonderful to, to speak to her and, and to hear that because it, it shows that even sort of well-intentioned climate change coverage can, can often sort of go a bit askew. Yeah. And you also spoke to uh, Andrew McCormack, adjunct professor at Columbia University, oh, at Columbia Journalism Review. What kind of coverage does he do? Well, he's a really interesting guy because he was in the US Navy and he decided, you know, what's the best way I can sort of serve? And he decided to leave the military and actually to become a climate change correspondent. You know, we were talking to him about, you know, what good climate change coverage looks like, this, this problem of, you know, for me, I mean, often climate change is a what I call a diary story rather than a daily story. It's it's a, a subject that gets a lot of attention around the times of the big summits like Glasgow, but falls off the radar in between. And I think a lot of the coverage that you see around the big conferences is often to expiate the guilt of newsrooms. You know, we haven't been doing enough. Let's do, <laughs> let's really monster around the climate change summits. You know, yeah. Um, and and he sort of accepts that that's a big problem. I think one of the interesting things he said, Dan, was that COVID has shown how creative, you know, the, the journalistic profession can be. You know, a lot of creative energy was brought to how to cover COVID, you know. So we saw things like, you know, the redesign of front pages to accommodate, you know, daily stats to tell us how many cases there were, how many deaths there were, all that kind of stuff. I mean, he, he spoke about the New York Times one day had a, an amazing headline during the the middle of COVID in New York. And I mean, this was when 800 people a day were dying in New York City alone. And I, mean, I had COVID early on. I you know the fear that, that that brought. He mentioned this Times headline and that, you know, the New York Times isn't known for its sort of radical newspaper design, far from it. But they had this spike in the death rate that, that actually went right through the front page and up into the masthead. So they kind of disrupted the words New York Times. And, you know, he just showed a few examples of how during COVID, you know, there was a real rethink. How, how are we going to tell this dramatic story? How are we going to tell this kind of emergency crisis story? And he doesn't always see that same creative approach when it comes to climate change reporting. And I thought that, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I'd love to see the, uh, the daily carbon dioxide parts per million stat on the front of the Daily <laughs> Telegraph. That's what it's, Ben English should be doing. It's should a tricky one, it, isn't it? 413 million, 413 parts per million, Ben. Put that on the front cover. Finding those stats is a bit tricky, is it? Because it's kind of like, you know, they're, they're pretty meaningless. And I think that gets you into another area of climate change reporting, which is how do you turn the stats into interesting stories? And the way that you do that is always through the humans, the human face. What's it going to take? What's it going to take for news orgs to really focus on climate, to bring those stories to bear that are more than just a diary event at the IPCC? Mm, mm. Yeah, Um I mean, Sky News is quite interesting. Sky News is a very different entity in um, in Britain in than it is yeah. in in yeah, yeah. in in Australia. In Australia, it's not owned by Rupert Murdoch anymore. It's um, and and they actually have a nightly news show devoted solely devoted to climate. You know, they have made a daily commitment to actually say, you know, I don't know how long the program is 10, 15 minutes every night. We are going to bring you a, we are going to bring you climate change news, and I think that is a really welcome development when you kind of make that 
that sort of commitment because that doesn't look to me like window dressing. That 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 feels that that feels meaningful to me. And um, you know, they've done it, and you know, it, it would be good if other other news organisations follow suit as well because you know, Dan, this is. You know, this is the biggie. I mean, I, I, I still think 2020, in 100 years' time, you know, we'll look back on 2020 and we'll look at the wildfires in Australia as being a more significant event in terms of the future of the planet than COVID. You know, we'll look at, we'll look at the fact that people in Sydney were wearing face masks, not because of a, an infection, but because of the air quality because of the wildfires. And we think that was the most significant thing that happened in mm. 2020. And look, I think often it requires political leadership to dramatize these issues. I mean, I, I was actually, you know, name dropping horribly. I, I ended up in a small lunch with Antonio <laughs> Guterres in New York around this that. guy is like Greta, Alba, exactly. Trump, Here we go. Antonio Guterres is coming <laughs> well, next. Queen I'll Elizabeth. You, I'll tell you a Trump story if you want, but I mean, um, it <laughs> no, doesn't no. really relate to climate change, but this one does. And it was, it was a small lunch with Antonio Guterres, you know, secretary general of the United Nations. It was in the midst of the Aussie wildfires and, you know, because I love Oz and I'm, keep a pretty close eye on what was happening here, even though when I lived in, in America, you know, I just said to Guterres, I mean, why don't you fly to Australia, stand in front of one of these bushfires or stand as close as you can get and just use it as this dramatic backdrop to say, we are seeing something immeasurably different here. We are, because he makes these speeches in New York in these sort of dull settings, you know, that's the, the there's a sort of stakeout position at the UN where they come to the microphone and, you know, it's always the same and the words are often the same as well. He just sort of repeats the same warning that he's made every year. But if you actually repeated those words with a wildfire, a bushfire happening behind you, it would be so dramatic. And, you know, Guterres is just really reluctant to do that. He never wants to name and shame countries that are laggards on, on climate change. And Australia has obviously been one of those. And he just, doesn't want to go there. And I think that uh, has been a big problem as well. You know, journalists relies on actors who have real power and, and often they are the, the politicians and the leaders at the UN who, who aren't delivering the kind of graphic and pictorial leadership that sometimes journalists, journalists need to be really, really effective. I do remember a photo of him um, and maybe you, this conversation you had with him, Nick, actually had some effect on him. He, he, I still remember this photo of him in Fiji in his suit, uh, waist tight in water. So it wasn't quite he as He did dramatic. do this. He did yeah. do it. Look, I can't claim credit. So, so maybe, 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 maybe Nick Bryant, you are the, you're a faceless man behind the Antonio Guterres' photo shoot <laughs> in Fiji. Well, that's, anybody who's seen my face would. Would think that the faceless version of me would be. That's not far, true, Nick. That's not true. No, no, there's another. You know, the other journalist, Nick Bryant in New York City, he's got the got his website, Nick Bryant <laughs> NYC dot com. Uh, he's got a disclaimer on his website saying, "I'm not the BBC, Nick Bryant." Nick Bryant. Oh, is that he's, right? He's much more handsome than me. Oh, I can't believe that's true, but it's so weird. There is another Nick Bryant, and he he really focuses on um, sex abuse against kids, and he's become. I think a lot of people have taken him up in sort of conspiracy theory circles. And um, yeah, no, we, we, I'm constantly getting, I mean, he, 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 for instance, discovered that Jeffrey Epstein had that, that black book and I'm constantly getting asked to do interviews about Jeffrey Epstein's black book. And, like, and, I'm, and not I'm not Nick that Nick Bryant. Bryant. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Nick, thank you. It's been an absolute, oh, sorry, Dr. Nick, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on Greatest Moral Podcast of Our Generation. It's, it's nice to be on. Thanks, thanks for having me. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.